Welcome to Two Cans and a String. I'm your host, Jax. Well, we're actually a little bit freer now. That's why you haven't heard from me as regularly as you used to. Um, I've been a little bit busy since we've got out of lockdown three to lockdown level two. I did pick up a little bit of work and I've got some of my weddings coming back because if you didn't know, I marry people on the side. Not like a polygamist, I'm a celebrant, so or an officiant, if you don't know what a celebrant is. doesn't mean that I'm celibate. There's a difference there, guys. Anyway, so I've also had a lot of research to do for this show because it's a bit of a special show. This is our 10th, well, sorry, my 10th episode. And during lockdown, we had Anzac Day, so we didn't get to actually celebrate that as we would usually. I would go down to the dawn parade and listen to some bagpipes and whatnot, have some quiet time of reflection. Um, But we couldn't leave the house and do that this time around. So this is going to be an episode that uh, touches on World War II. It's also not going to include a personal story of me. It's actually going to include personal diary entries from my grandfather, John Smith, whilst he was a soldier for the New Zealand Army in World War Two, And we're also going to cover the story of a Japanese soldier who thought he was still in the midst of World War Two for 29 years. So buckle up and hope you enjoy the episode. I'm going to start by thanking all of the sources as per usual. Uh, first one is an article by Alex Arbuckle at Mashable.com, got History.co.uk, BBC.com, JapanTimes.co.jp, um, Ron Ron Kalanzod was, uh, he wrote quite a good article there. And then we have an article from Gabe Paoletti in AllThatIsInteresting.com, one from Justin McMurray at TheGuardian.com, uh, Robert McFadden at NY times.com of course got wikipedia where would i be without wikipedia donate to wikipedia guys and then we also have tim mcwelch uh, mcwelch from outdoorlife.com yeah outdoorlife.com i'll tell you what i find an abundance of interesting stuff on there who would have thought the soldier who wouldn't surrender Hiru Onoda fought on for three decades. The story of him is one of dedication and courage sprinkled with a heavy dose of stubbornness and delusion. Born on the 19th of March 1922 and one of seven children, Hiru Onoda grew up in the village of Kamikawa on the island of Honshu, Japan. Onoda was born into a long line of warriors, dating all the way back to his samurai ancestors and continuing up to his father, a sergeant in the Japanese cavalry who fought and died in the Second Sino-Japanese War in China. Onoda followed the same path as his forebears and enlisted in the Imperial Japanese Army when he turned 18 in 1940 just one year before Japan would go to war with the United States when they attacked Pearl Harbor. 
In the army, Onoda was singled out and trained as an intelligence officer in the commando class Futamada at the Nakano School, a military training facility in Tokyo that specialised in turning out elite commando units by teaching unconventional military techniques. It was here that Onoda was taught the art of guerrilla warfare alongside history, philosophy, covert operations, propaganda and martial arts. The skills that Anoda gained from his unique training would come in handy when he was sent to Labang Island in the Philippines at the end of his training in December of 1944. Two years earlier, the Imperial Japanese Army had wrestled control from the Philippines government and the American forces stationed in the nation. However, their army was spread thin, and when the US embarked on a counter-invasion of the island nation in early '44, they quickly began pushing back the Japanese. By that winter, many of the Japanese troops were forced out of the major islands of the Philippines and had retreated to the smaller islands of the Philippine archipelago, like Labang Island. An archipelago is a chain of islands a very large chain of islands. Philippines is known for being one, and so is Indonesia, which is the largest. This was a strategic island, 25 kilometres, or 16 miles long, and 10 kilometres, or 6 miles, wide on the southwestern approach to Manila Bay and the island of Corregidor, which was a major fortification. With his training in guerrilla warfare tactics, Anoda was sent to the small island on December 26th in order to use his particular set of skills. Thus, Anoda was sent to implement a technique that the Japanese had been testing out, which was, when their outposts were close to defeat in conventional warfare, they would retreat to the woods and engage in guerrilla attacks. Not to be confused with attacking guerrillas. You know what I mean. The intent was to prevent U.S. troops from making strong footholds in the region by sabotaging harbour installations and an airstrip delaying their ability to move closer to Japan and giving the Imperial Japanese Army more time to regroup and prepare for attacks. These guerrilla units, which also acted as spies, would also continue to be a thorn in the Allies' side. His orders were simple. Sabotage the island's harbours and airstrips, to render them unusable for Allied forces. However, when Anoda arrived at Lubang, the superior officers he made contact with refused to let him carry out his assignment, opting instead to fight invading troops head-on. After the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945, Japan officially announced its surrender on the 2nd of September that year bringing an end to World War II. Allied forces had actually landed on the island in February of 1945, and it wasn't long before most of the Japanese soldiers defending the island had either been killed, captured, or had managed to escape. As he prepared to make his own way off the island, Onoda's commanding officer, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi, gave Onoda his last remain and, sorry, his last remaining men, an order that would change the course of the young lieutenant's life. Taniguchi told Onoda he must stand and fight and never surrender. 
It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you, the Major told him. Anoda took him at his word. He would later say, I was always defiant and stubborn in everything I did. This is when Anoda became cut off on Lebang as US troops came north. The young soldier had orders not to surrender, a command he obeyed for nearly three decades. He said, Every Japanese soldier was prepared for death, but as an intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not die. I became an officer and I received an order. If I could not carry it out, I would feel shame. I am very competitive, he added. As a result, when the American troops landed on the small island, the Japanese forces there attempted to fight them and were quickly defeated. Seeing their impending defeat, Anoda located three fellow soldiers, Private Yuchi Akatsu, Corporal Shochi Shimada, and Private First Class Kinshichi Kazuka, and ordered them into the thick forests of Lebang with him to engage in his guerrilla warfare. There they planned to planted. There they planned to cause as much disruption to the enemy as they could. The fact that there wasn't an enemy anymore was neither here nor there. Onoda carried out this guerrilla warfare for the next twenty nine years. Twenty nine years This guy Whoa okay in late 1945, Anoda had noticed a lull in the fighting, but did not suspect that his home nation had surrendered. So he continued his private war, killing local farmers and even engaging in shootouts with the police when they were sent after him. Knowing the existence of the Japanese guerrilla units, who had no method of communication with the Central Military Command, the United States made several efforts to make make sure the news of Japan's surrender reached those holdouts, including the airdropping of explanatory leaflets ordering all holdouts to surrender. The first time the four men saw a leaflet announcing that Japan had surrendered was in October of 1945. Another Japanese cell had killed a cow and found a leaflet left behind by the islanders which read, The war ended! Come down from the mountains! A suspicious Anoda dismissed this leaflet. Remember, he dealt with propaganda, so he understood the power behind the printed word and how much that could sway the minds of people. So he just thought this was another propaganda tool. So there was another airdrop over the island, and this one contained an order to surrender, and that was given by General Tomoyuki Yamashita of the 14th Area Army. Anoda, who had been trained in propaganda, examined the leaflet carefully and again, again declared it a fake. He had been given his orders, and as far as he was concerned, no American forgery was going to stop him from carrying them out. Anoda, who had a very traditional sense of pride, traditional, traditional sense of pride, could not imagine that the Japanese would surrender and thought that they would fight on until the last soldier. He and his men thus continued their campaign of terror on the countryside, eluding the Philippine authorities and locals. And so began many years of guerrilla warfare against Lebang's civilian population, 
its local police force and several Filipino and American search parties sent out to try and find these men. The local farmers had little choice but to get used to the idea that a band of Japanese soldiers could suddenly burst out of the forest without warning and steal their cattle, burn down their rice silos, set fire to their farms and even shoot them dead. Jeez, it's no big deal really. You're just going about your farming life, enjoying the countryside, enjoying being amongst your livestock. Next minute, you've got a crazy Japanese soldier who's been hunkered down in the thick forest trying to steal your cow and shooting you while they're doing it. That's totally insane. And that is for 29 years. 29 years! Can't get over that. The men built bamboo huts and they patched their uniforms and kept their rifles in working order. The years rolled on. In their jungle hideout, the men survived on a diet of coconuts, bananas, rice that they stole and the cattle they slaughtered from the local farms. One of Anoda's men was becoming increasingly suspicious that the war might just be over after all. Akatsu decided to break away from the group in September of 1949. He spent six months in the forest on his own before finally surrendering to the Filipinos in 1950. Akatsu's surrender let the rest of the world know that about the Japanese holdouts still on Lubang Island. He was able to give the authorities some information on the group. Armed with this knowledge, the US contacted the families of the holdouts and obtained family photos and letters from their relatives urging them to come home and airdrop them over the island in 1952. Onoda said, We found leaflets and photos from our families. I assumed they were living under the occupation and had to obey the authorities to survive. The three remaining soldiers found those letters, but again dismissed them as fakes. Man, there's some serious like fortitude to keep that like suspicious mind frame, isn't it? The next two decades were tough on Hiru Onoda. The following year, Private Shimada was shot in the leg during a raid on a fishing village. Despite the unclean conditions in which the men lived, Onoda was able to nurse his injured comrade back to health. Unfortunately, it was all for naught, for when in 1954, Corporal Shochi Shimada was shot and killed by a Philippine search party looking for the men, who were wanted criminals at this point. Their group had dwindled to just two men. Onoda and Kazuka managed to miss such minor events as the Korean War, the entire career of the Beatles, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King, the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, the building of the Berlin Wall, the moon landing, and most of the Vietnam War. For them, every day was World War II much to the consternation of harassed villagers and the police. As the 1960s gave way to the 1970s, God, that is insane. From the, oh, I still can't wrap my brain around this. As the 1960s gave way to the 1970s, the increasingly ragged soldiers carried on with their war. Conditions in the jungle were often unbearable, especially in summer when mosquitoes made their lives a misery. Yet still they prevailed, determined to carry out orders given to them 25 years before. In October 1972, a police search party yet again set out to find the soldiers. They encountered them raiding a rice silo, and in the ensuing gun battle, Kazuka was shot twice 
and killed. Anoda was now totally alone. Did he finally give up? No. He had his orders. By this point, he became a figure of legend on Lebang and beyond. Anoda was now fully alone, waging a one-man war against the Philippine government. At this point, after the return of Akatsu and the deaths of Shimada and Kazuka, the Japanese public was well aware of, and in some ways enchanted with the story of Hiru Anoda. News of Kazuka's death shocked the Japanese authorities. Both him and Anoda had long been declared dead after the death of Shimada in 1954. Popular consensus suggested it simply was not possible for two remaining soldiers to still be alive after all this time, and when Kazuka's body was flown back to Japan, it dawned on the authorities that Lieutenant Anoda was probably still alive, but how on earth would they to force him to surrender? Adventurer Norio Suzuki was on a quest. Bored of his life in Japan, he had set off to the Philippines, determined to find a man many presumed had been dead for years. That man's name was the very Lieutenant Hiru Anoda. What made Suzuki leave his home and trek through the forests of Labang in search of this particular Japanese soldier? Because the year was 1974, and Anoda was still stubbornly fighting the Second World War nearly 30 years after everyone else had packed up and gone home. Suzuki had a goal, to set out and find 1. Lieutenant Anoda, 2. A panda in the wild, and 3. The Abominable Snowman, in that order. On February 20th, 1974, the two men ran into each other in the jungles of Lebang, and believe it or not, struck up a friendship. Originally, Anoda was fully prepared to shoot Suzuki on sight, but luckily, Suzuki had done his research on the soldier and quickly said, Anoda-san, the emperor and the people of Japan are worried about you. It was enough for Anoda to lower his weapon and listen to Suzuki. The war had been over for nearly 30 years, Suzuki told him. It was time to come home. Of course, this had zero impact on Anoda whatsoever. He told Suzuki that the only way he would surrender is if he was ordered to do so by his commanding officer. So, Suzuki headed back off to Japan with a photo of Anoda and himself as proof that the old soldier was indeed alive and well. Once the authorities received the news, a search began to track down the man who had given Anoda the order to stand and fight all those years ago. By 1974, Major Yoshimi Taniguchi was living the quiet life of a bookseller. He was rather surprised when the Japanese government asked him to fly to the Philippines so he could relieve a soldier he hadn't seen in three decades of his duty. Taniguchi agreed to go, and was flown to Labang. On the morning of the 9th of March, Taniguchi was finally able to fulfil the promise he had made in 1945 when he met Anoda in a forest clearing, and handed over his country's formal order to stand down. Taniguchi had said 
he would come back for him, and he had. It had just taken a considerably longer time than the original five-year estimate. Taniguchi then issued Anoda the following orders. In accordance with the Imperial Command, the 14th Area Army has ceased all combat activity. In accordance with Military Headquarters Command Number A-2003, the Special Squadron of Staff's Headquarters is relieved of all military duties. Units and individuals under the command of Special Squadron are to cease military activities and operations immediately and place themselves under the command of the nearest superior officer. When no officer can be found, they are to communicate with the American or Philippine forces and follow their directives. After all of this, Anoda would say about meeting Suzuki, this hippie boy Suzuki came to the island to listen to the feelings of a Japanese soldier. Suzuki asked me why I would not come out. I said that if the war was over and I received an order telling me to stop fighting, I would come out. So, Suzuki brought my commanding officer to Labang, and I did just that. And so, after 29 years diligently fighting the Second World War, primarily against the farmers of Labang Island, Lieutenant Hiru Onoda finally surrendered. He saluted the Japanese flag and handed over his Arisaka Type 99 bolt-action rifle, which was still in excellent shape. He handed over 500 rounds of ammunition, also his ceremonial sword and sword belt, as well as his dagger still in its white case, and this his mother had actually given to him in 1944 to kill himself with if ever he got captured. And he also handed over the remaining grenades that he had managed to keep. The wiry figure, still dressed in his old uniform, which had rotted away in many parts, and he had mended by hand with coconut fibre, boarded a plane to Manila, where he presented his sword to President Ferdinand Marcos. This was to be his act of surrender, and Anoda was pardoned for his many crimes against the state. For Anoda, the war was finally over. Side note, he was actually the second to last Japanese soldier to surrender. The last man standing, Private Teruo Nakumara, a soldier from Taiwan who served in the Japanese army, was found growing crops alone on the Indonesian island of Morotai on the 18th of December 1974. Mr. Nakamura was repatriated to Taiwan, where sadly he died only five years later in 1979. The Philippine government may have granted Anoda a pardon, but many in Lubang never forgave him for the 30 people he killed during his campaign on the island. He had killed people and engaged in shootouts with the police purely because he believed that World War II was still ongoing. Anoda would later explain he believed attempts to persuade him to leave were a plot concocted by the pro-US government in Tokyo, and by the time he surrendered, he had been on the island since 1944, two years after he was drafted into the Japanese Imperial Army. 
He was already a national hero when he arrived in Tokyo, met by his aging parents and a huge flag-waving crowd. More than patriotism or admiration for his grit, his jungle saga, which had dominated the news in Japan for days, evoked waves of nostalgia and melancholy. The 52-year-old soldier, a ghost from the past in a new blue suit, close-cropped military haircut and wispy moustache with his chin whiskers, spoke earnestly of duty and seemed to personify a devotion to traditional values that many Japanese thought had been lost. He said, I was fortunate that I could devote myself to my duty in my young and vigorous years. Asked what had been on his mind all that time in the jungle, he said, nothing but accomplishing my duty. After his national welcome in Japan, Anoda was examined by doctors who found him in amazingly good condition. He was given a military pension and signed a $160,000 contract for a ghost-written memoir called No Surrender, My 30-Year War. As his story went global in books, articles and documentaries, he tried to lead a normal life. The Japanese government offered him a large sum of money in back pay, which he refused and settled on a pension instead. When money was pressed on him by well-wishers, he donated it to the Yasukuni Shrine, which is a shrine that was erected in 1869 in order to honour the souls of those who died fighting for the emperor. So, pretty much still, you know, really living life for the emperor there. But Anoda had returned a stranger to a Japan he did not recognise. When he left in 1944, it was an ancient land of paper and wooden houses. Thirty years later, it was a land of soaring skyscrapers, high-speed trains, a growing electronics industry, and a population that was no longer fanatically loyal to the emperor, unlike himself. Anoda went dancing, he took driving lessons, and travelled up and down the Japanese islands. He quickly grew disillusioned with this modern version of Japan, as well as with the fame that dogged his daily life. He was never comfortable with the truth he had learned about Japan, and the new country that he returned to. He did not believe that the nation should have taken responsibility for the war in East Asia, and was appalled that they had let their military be dissolved by the Allied powers. Soon after returning, he became involved in right-wing politics, calling for a stronger, more warlike Japan. His fame and the vast changes that had occurred in Japan during the time he'd been away made him uneasy. He said in an interview, Japan's philosophy and ideas changed dramatically after World War II, and that philosophy clashed with mine, so I went to live in Brazil. As you do. In 1975, he followed the example of his elder brother, Tadao, and chose to leave his native land for a second time, this time settling into a Japanese colony in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where he became a successful cattle rancher, which is quite ironic considering he harassed cattle ranchers for 30 years on Labang Island. The following year, he married Machi Anuku, a Japanese tea ceremony teacher. 
I'm reading about a teenager who had murdered his parents. Anoda chose to return to Japan in 84, setting up the Anoda Nature School for troubled children with his wife Machi. The school taught, you guessed it, wilderness survival skills, which he believed would help them connect to nature and build positive values. Anoda revisited Lubang, the site of his long holdout in 1996, and relatives of people who he was accused of killing gathered to demand compensation. They were still pretty pissed at him after waging his one-man war. He went on to donate $10,000 to a local school there. His legacy lives on in Lubang, where his story is taught in their classes. They have also opened a trail in his name, which in turn has helped preserve natural landscapes in the name of history. However, locals still recall encounters with the Noda. Felitu Volutard, 68, was a high school student joining a local patrol team searching for the Japanese soldiers sometime in 1969 when he was sniped on his back by either Kazuka or Noda. The minor injury, which was treated promptly by a local doctor, left a scar that remains visible to today. Volontad said others were not as lucky as him. There were some that were killed by shooting. My uncle was also shot and injured in the stomach. I was angry at them. I was happy when Anoda surrendered because there was nothing for people to fear anymore in the mountains. While he agrees that Anoda and his posse should have apologised and compensated the local people further, he also understands where Anoda is coming from because he really thought the war was still going at the time. Jacoba Balbuena, who was 76, a retired airman of the Philippine Air Force who was stationed on the island, can still vividly recall how the Japanese and local authorities conducted a search for Anoda and convinced him to surrender. He said, We were surprised when we actually saw Anoda in person because he was only around five feet tall and not a very big person. Balbuena said he was part of the 14 honor guards who Anoda passed through upon his surrender at Goza Air Station. He walked straight, he was snappy, he looked like a very smart soldier. He looked very strong, said Balbuena. In recent years, Anoda lived in Japan, mostly with three months a year in Brazil, where he was awarded the Merit Medal of Santos Dumont by the Brazilian Air Force in 2004 and in 2010 he was made an honorary citizen of Brazil. He then lived out the rest of his life a rich and successful man. Hiru Anoda died of heart failure on the 16th of January 2014 at the ripe old age of 91. As for Norio Suzuki, the adventurer that found Anoda, shortly after finding Anoda in the jungle, he found a panda in the wild. He was killed in an avalanche in the Himalayas in 1986 while he was continuing his hunt for the third thing on his list, the abominable snowman. Anoda's dedication as well as fanatical belief in the eventual victory of the Japanese led him to persevere through some of the most difficult conditions imaginable, but it also drove him to murder a number of innocent civilians long after the war had ended. But remember, he wasn't the only one. 
He wasn't the only guy to live for this long after the war ended. On September the 2nd, 1945, less than a month after the atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, representatives of the Emperor sorry, representatives of the Empire of Japan signed the unconditional surrender of Japan to the Allies. This event, which officially marked the end of World War II, took place on the deck of the USS Missouri, anchored in Tokyo Bay. All throughout East Asia and the Pacific, the mass disarmament of Imperial Japanese forces began. Weapons were collected, officers were debriefed and documented, and soldiers were relieved and sent home. For other Japanese holdouts, the war would go out for decades. Would go on for decades. My bad. During the war, Japan had sent troops to almost every inhabitable island in the Pacific with the single charge of defending the emperor and his territory with their lives. Some soldiers were so cut off from civilization that they either did not know that the war was over or simply refused to believe it. In Guam, Indonesia, and the Philippines especially, dozens of soldiers would continue to conduct guerrilla attacks against local military and police forces. Allied forces littered the jungles with leaflets like the ones that Anoda had found a couple of times during his 29-year stint in Lebang. But these Japanese soldiers continued to fight. Some even volunteered to fight alongside Vietnamese and Indonesian independence movements well into the 1950s. Soichi Yokoi went into hiding after the Battle of Guam in 1944. He survived in a cave for 28 years until being discovered in January of 1972. Yokoi, a soldier who was found on the island of Guam in 1972, dismissed reports declaring the war's end as Allied propaganda. On his return to a hero's welcome in Japan, Yokoi famously said, It is with much embarrassment, but I have returned. Teruo Nakamura survived with other holdouts in Indonesia until they allegedly tried to kill him in the 1950s. He subsequently went off on his own living in a hut until he was discovered in 1974. He was the last of the Japanese holdouts from World War II. In 2005, there were unsubstantiated claims that two former Japanese soldiers in their 80s were still in hiding in the mountains of the Philippine island of Mindanao. The men were reportedly afraid that they would be court-martialed for desertion if they gave themselves up. Oh, poor guys. After Japan surrendered that September, thousands of Japanese soldiers were scattered across China, Southeast Asia and the Western Pacific. Many stragglers were captured or went home, while hundreds went into hiding rather than surrender or commit suicide. Many died of starvation or sickness. A few survivors actually refused to believe that the drop leaflets and radio announcements saying the war had been lost. So after all that, the story of Hiru Inoda shows us all just how far values like loyalty, pride, determination and commitment can take you, for good or for ill. And that, my friends, is the totally insane story of Hiru Inoda and his 29-year war for World War Two absolute insanity so just think about it 
could be worse. You could think you could be thinking that you're in a twenty nine year war and living you know, living in a jungle, just getting by day to day, thinking anytime you come across a person they're trying to kill you. It's just an unbelievable story. I can't get over it. Quite a few years ago, uh, my dad, Rog, uh, he decided to get together with a local uh, family friend, Ross Jennings, who was also a producer, and he also is how I got my job at Police 107. And he decided to get together about uh, reading over the war diaries of my grandfather, John, and also a local farmer called Richard, his father Morris as well. So they actually created a play between the two uh, two war veterans diaries and my dad and Richard both read out the diary entries of their fathers and in between it all we had uh, World War Two sound effects and music and it was bloody awesome. So that is where I've got the diary entries from. So here we go. John Smith spent his youth in rural Petoni and started an apprenticeship with cables as a boilermaker, which probably explains why, when he volunteered in 1939, he went into the 8th Field Company New Zealand Engineers. He departed New Zealand on the first echelon to go to North Africa in 1940. He was trained there to build bridges, roads and lay mines. He also trained to blow up bridges, roads, and anything the enemy had. And on top of that, he also cleared mines. He served in North Africa, Crete, Greece, and Italy, where he was captured. As he was moved even closer to Germany through various prison camps, he escaped and made his way to the American lines. On his return to New Zealand, he trained to be a farmer, married the lovely Dot, my grandmother, and was settled on a hill country farm at Wairamarama, south of Port Waikato. John Smith was my grandfather. The diaries that my grandfather kept were very small little pocket diaries that you may see in a farmer's top pocket. Um, and so they are very short and brief descriptions of his days. But, I mean, maybe that's where I get my bluntness from. Diaries were also not encouraged to be kept. The army didn't want people to be recording diaries, um, but John did, and he managed to smuggle some of them out um, through Red Cross and sent them back home to my grandmother Dot. This is what she told me. So who knows, sometimes she liked to embellish things a little bit. But uh, these are some of the things that I got told by her. And... I also got told that he hid a diary in his hair. He had very, very thick hair, which you actually wouldn't know if you met my dad because he's bald. And my brother, he's bald too. Sorry, guys, but, I mean, it's, it's true. Um, but my grandfather, he did have a luscious set of locks on top of his head, so I could understand him hiding a diary in there, but... Dad said that he didn't hear that story, but I did hear that story from Arma, who was my grandmother. Now I'm going to go into John's diary entries. And just remember, there is a lot of nicknames and shorthand, and I will try my best 
to explain the word World War Two jargon. Uh, and you'll also know that there will be uh, nicknames on nationalities as well. It was a different time. March 1st, 1942. On stores duty, looking after stores. Fire rifle at Arabs. They get going. April 4th. Wog wakes us up with the owls. I fire a rifle at him. April 13th. Wogs break into one of the magazines. Staff beat me at crib. Roast leg of mutton bartered off Wogs for dinner. 100% meals at the moment. May the 16th. Go down and see the boxing. Lot of knockouts. Staff are on a bender. May 24th. Go on leave for a day. Drink a bit of wine. Have a run-in with the MP staff missing. Turns up two days later. Been in the lock-up. Fined ten shillings. September 8th. Cart mines in morning. Arthur and I cook up some oysters. Very nice too. Lots of artillery fire. Got a boil in a very awkward spot. The dust is very bad. September 14th. Cook up white bait. Go to work over Wadi in the morning. Get pumps out, fishing after lunch. Blow quite a few, one over 12 pounds. I think they were using dynamite. June 2nd. P. Reeves gets his hand blown off and Purvis is also hurt. Very hot. Hear rumours of a move. I kind of like how he's just like, yeah, this guy lost his hand and then we're just going to move on to how hot the weather is. June 19th. Moved 200 miles down to Palestine. Heat's wicked. About 120 degrees Celsius. Acquire melons and grapefruit along the way. June 21st. Move across Sinai Desert and camp by canal. Pass Cairo the next day. Get to Mursa Matru. Terrific flak at night. Flak is artillery fire. January 1st, 1943. Very windy and dusty, so no work. Kill snake in bed! Right to bet. Bet is my great auntie, so his sister. Play cards. Heavy rain at night. Have a gazelle for dinner. Very nice. January 14th. We join A Squadron. Park at 8pm. A jeep crashes into our tent and Gus and I get bruised. Very lucky, as it passes over the top of us. I get knocked out. January 15th. Don't feel the best. <laughs> January 25th. Move at 11.15am, about 20 miles to a rotten place. Quite a few farms about, but can't get any eggs. Everybody very disappointed for not getting into Tripoli. Rations are a bit light. We go on the scrounge, but do no good. We'll have to get stuff somehow. 26th of Jan. One of the local itties bring us some milk. I think Gus and his accordion are responsible. The 27th. A pack of starving kids hang around. We give them a feed, get a pint of wine. Each night, it's a bit sour. January the 27th. Move out and up. Lot of Hun stuff destroyed. Come under heavy shell fire. Gus and I are partly buried. A shell lands within 12 feet of us. Hun is another nickname for German soldiers. 
October 22nd. Work all day. Back by 4pm. Move tomorrow. We go out and acquire a couple of pigs off the itties. Lot of fun. Commando tactics. If you're wondering what an itty is, it means local guide. November 26th. Move up to Forley. Get shelled just as we get into our area. I sleep in car. Spasmodic shelling at night. November 27th. Still being shelled. If I can see Christmas, I'll be right. November 28th. Out on job at 7am. Mostly road work. Boys find a vermouth factory. Thousands of gallons. Boys up to their ankles. Couple of Hun planes over us as we come back. Get strafed, well clear of us. Pretty tired tonight. Have a few vermouths. Getting strafed meant uh, getting attacked by Germans. November 29th. Out on the job again. Plenty of riveting and road work. Knock off at 4.30pm. Have quite a few vermouths at night. Three Hun graves out at the farm. Ages 18, 19, 20. Grim, isn't it? December 24th. Nothing doing in morning. Go fishing in afternoon. Or try. Too rough for raft we made, but we have a lot of fun. Get bottle of ale at night. Feel like a party and no means of having one. December 25th. Christmas Day. Here we are, 250 miles west of Benghazi. Build an oven to cook up Christmas dinner. Have pork, roast potatoes, etc. Also Christmas pudding. Wonderful meal. July 4th. Woken by very heavy gunfire. Air raid at 4am. We move. Lot of enemy bombers out today. I fire my rifle every time one comes low. Barrage starts at 10pm for attack. July 5th. Heavy fog until 8am. Heavy guns move in alongside. Fire all day. Lot of air raids. Heavy battery firing all around us. Here we are to attack tonight. July 10th, up at 4.30am, away with mines. Furious battle raging. Come under shell fire. July the 11th, battle still raging away behind us. Move a mile and park for the day. July 14th, go out on an all-day job. Repair 50 miles of road. Stooker raid quite close. Lot of enemy planes about today. A Stooker is an aircraft that dive bombs. FYI. Bed down at mid- midnight. A dogfight happens overhead. Huns come down to a hundred feet. Out again surveying. Try to blow 18 jerry tanks. Come under enemy fire. Take shelter among our own tanks. Lucky to get out with whole hide. Rum ration at night. A jerry tank is just like a jerry can of gasoline, so they obviously were trying to attack the explosives. July 17th. Go for a recce at 5.30am. Examine Hoon tank. Or Hun tank, sorry. Get quite a bit of butter out of Hun truck. Get issue of two tins of beer. A lot of air activity at night. The 20th of July. Go out looking for minefield. Cover 30 miles. Usual amount of air activity. Truckload of mines goes up. Seven of 7th Field Company killed. 
two more cans of beer at night, along with usual air activity. July 21st. Go out for recce of job at night. Three Mark Threes fire at us from 600 yards and miss, otherwise this entry wouldn't be here. Big attack at night. We advance to lift mines. Come under savage machine gun fire and mortars, etc. Bed down at 1am to snatch sleep, ready to leave instantaneously. The 22nd of July. Up at 4.30am, move back a few miles, lots of stookers in action. One lot over 30. Here our 6th Brigade is missing. July 23rd. See a kitty hawk come down and burst into flames. Pilot killed. Go on recce with Paddy Mac. See quite a bit of the battle. Still as fierce. September the 1st. Lot of bombers and fighters about. Both sides. Enemy shelling falls in our camp area. Big dog fight at 7pm. Five planes come down. Three Huns. Air activity right up to dark. September the 2nd, itty plane down near where we work. Pilot still in it, killed. See a spitfire come down in flames. Very near hits us. The pilot lands in our lines. September 3rd, RAF very active. So that's the Royal Air Force. Bombers continually on the move. Over 500 pass over. September 6th. Big air battle at 9am, right overhead. Fighters down to 200 feet, eight planes down, bombing all day. Four Stookers shot down in the raid at 6pm. The Hun has taken a beating in tanks. December 20th, 1944. Leave platoon at 7 meantime. Go for a recce and get captured by Germans. Lucky to be alive. Take all my gear, wristwatch, money, etc. Won't give them information, so they beat me with a heavy stick and threaten to hang us. Five of us taken. Caught with little clothing, no underwear or overcoat. December 24th. Move into big room today. A crowd of Yank Negroes comes in. It's a cold place. Weather's still good. Minus 15 to minus 20 degrees of frost. 25th, Christmas Day. Eight of us in schoolhouse. Worst Christmas of my life. Very cold and little to eat. Think of stuff I had back in company. I could cry. December 28th. Feel as though I'm going mad this day. Very near talking to myself. Guards who are old men feel very sorry for us. One sneaks me up a glass of hot water with rum and sugar, so cold can't taste it. Shift 40 of us at 6pm in a three-ton truck. Wicked packing. Cramp something awful. Told we'll be shot if we even move, and I can believe it. Bad types. January 1945, the 6th. Sleeping with snow for warmth. Only three blankets per man. Whole lot not as good as one of ours. January the 12th. Chaps do extra work, anything to get food. Dashed certain I won't work. 13th. 
Got a boil on back of neck to help me enjoy life. January the 14th. Find some lice on south. Must have caught them off snow. January 15th. Soup at 2pm and we move off. March through Mantova and about 4 kilometres other side. On train, 50 men to a boxcar, one bale of straw, latrine in centre. Train jolts off at 8pm at about 2 miles per hour. January 16th. Only moved about 15 miles. Jolt into tunnel just as RAF come over and bomb line behind and in front. Get rations. Black. Can't see a thing. Chaps singing after feed. Lot of trouble settling down for the night. Chaps true character coming out. New Zealanders are the best at present. January 17th. Still in tunnel. Temper's getting a little frayed. Get water. A quarter pint per man. Same bread ration. Quite a mixture of chaps. Scots, English, Irish, Canadians, Negroes, New Zealanders. Great debating goes on. Trouble is, can't talk unless someone butts in and starts arguing. Bedding down is trouble as latrine has flooded half the truck. The 18th. We jolt into open again today. Get a little water, half a pint. Told RAF has blown bridge and will be held out for some time. Move back into tunnel again, still freezing cold. Sleep hunched up together on our sides. All have to turn over together. Time means nothing. It's all the same. Blackness, all the time. Sigs are running out. Water short. Some of the chaps are bleeding like sheep for it. Germans must think we're a poor lot. Everyone's so dry, can't eat bread. Chaps have stopped talking about food. Now talk of drink. Not fancy ones. Just plain water. Getting pretty weak. Dizzy if you stand up too fast. Feet cold all the time. January 20th. Get very little sleep last night. Negroes talk all night about food and water. All we can do is lay down all day. Don't spend more than 10 minutes of 24 hours on feet. Feeling so weak. Get counted every day. No one's got enough energy to escape and weather is too cold. You'd die of exposure in a few hours if you didn't get shelter. Can't even get medical attention for the sick. Really serious now. Water situation, some rations and a quarter pint of water. January 23rd. Water craving got the worst. Just half a pint per man and still some of the chaps are beating their mates. January 24th. We pull out of the tunnel. Don't recognise each other. Pull up by a river and drink our fill. Systems are so run down, we don't urinate at all. Rations same, except we get a fair piece of jam and margarine. We wolf our fresh bread and suffer all night. January 27th. The inside of the boxcar is like a freezing icebox. Ice and snow on inside, and we are frozen. Everybody too miserable to worry about anything. Still a blizzard outside. Chaps sucking snow and ice off side of boxcar. Most of them too weak to stand up. Still the quarrelling goes on. 28. 
Pull into station by name of Moosburg in Bavaria. Get out of the train at 8pm and never so thankful. Weak as kittens. Chaps look so awful. Quite a few had to be carried. Walk to prison camp Starlag 7B. 400 to a hut onto straw. Two men to a mess tin. One blanket. Very little to eat. Everyone starving. A racket at 10pm and, and in comes a couple hundred yanks. Not room for all to sleep. Rations still poor. Yanks and Canadians argue all the time. Grown men moaning that they should have first choice or they are being cheated. We make some wicked brews. Tea leaves cooked up twice with breadcrumbs. Things are really grim. January 31st. Poor Tiny. What a fool. Swaps his overcoat. All he thinks of is food. February the 1st. Cut. Pee-wee. Out on a stretcher. His feet are bad. Be lucky if he doesn't lose him. I trade my bread ration, one-sixth of a loaf, for a yank pullover. By Jove, I needed it. February the 7th. Starlag 383. This is reckoned best organised camp in Germany. Now got a poisoned finger. March 1st. Quite a good tea. Have our three spuds each. Dry fried them. Make a few sweet dumplings. Get a quarter loaf for three cigs off a guard. So doing well. Quite a sight to see chaps rooting through swede and potato peelings. They cook same up. Bit of trouble to get enough fuel to cook our right, our night meal. Bit more of the hut gone. March 4th. Have a bread pudding for tea. Saved our crusts all week for it. Further cuts in food. Bread to be less. Sugar and marge cut out. Starting to feel pretty hungry most of the time. Harmony doesn't exactly rain in the hut. So I spoke to Dad about, uh, you know, what happened after that because those are where his diary entries end. But my grandfather actually escaped from his prisoner of war camp. And I had heard that he had escaped twice from armour, but that was later in life. So I think there was sometimes there was a little bit of uh, confusion when recalling stories. So I think that it was just the once. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, it was illegal to keep diaries. So the diary entries before John was caught were probably hidden by his mates who were remained behind in camp in his personal gear and that's and he actually got those returned to him afterwards um and all of his entries that happened during uh being caught he either wrote up afterwards or cleverly hid but he may have just written them up afterwards so how they escaped they got bicycles um, they actually managed to steal a couple of bicycles, I think, from maybe a couple of the guards and just pedaled right on out of the camp. And they stayed on the road for a while until Dad, uh, sorry, until my grandfather had a bad feeling about how easy it all was. So they ditched the bikes and started walking through the trees on the side of the road. And they suddenly heard voices speaking in German and they hid down and 
through the trees they could just make out six Gestapo having a smoke on the side of the same road they'd just been riding on. They definitely would have been killed if they'd been spotted. So they just laid low until the Germans moved on. Later on they were still trying to figure out their next move when they heard a motorbike approaching and around the corner came a motorbike with a sidecar. In the sidecar was an American smoking a huge cigar seated behind a mean looking machine gun. Granddad's mate was all for revealing himself but my granddad said no. This guy's been trained to shoot anything that moves and so they stayed hidden until a lot of American soldiers had marched past and then they yelled out don't shoot we're New Zealanders at which every soldier's gun swung around to their position luckily no one pulled the trigger and they were told to crawl out with their arms out in front their ordeal was over and they were once again in safe hands as a footnote further down the road they came across the six Gestapo riddled with bullets so the machine gun cigar smoker had done his job when I did speak to my grandmother, she said that uh, they did get helped in their escape by an Italian family on a farm, and I think they'd allowed them to sleep in a barn for the evening, and it actually given them a blanket, like a family blanket, to help keep them warm. And it was always her dream, to, because he kept that blanket and brought it back to New Zealand with him, and it was always her dream to deliver that blanket back to Italy, back to this family that had helped and she never really made it there. She did get to go to Europe but not fully travel all over. She did many of other crazy things instead. So we've probably still got that blanket lying around somewhere. So that was the story of my grandfather John Smith and his time in the war and his being captured and his escape which is pretty exciting obviously a terrible terrible thing to go through but uh, he came home managed to get the farm and went on to farm farm beef and lamb with my grandmother and have his two sons Roger and Howard and then us little troopers came along far far down the line unfortunately I never got to meet him he died before I was born um, but I did hear some good stories about him and if there's anything to go by my dad then he would have been a good sort again thanks for joining me on this special episode crazy old roller coaster old Hiru with his insane story of survival thinking that the war was still going on and then a personal family story for you about my grandfather and his survival so if you're out there and you're still having to be surrounded by the four walls of your house just remember it could be worse you know you could be dealing with a world war other than that for those of you who may have had a lift of restrictions during this COVID-19 malarkey, then just remember to, you know, be aware of other people, look out for other people, be kind, wash your hands, 
don't cough over people. One of my number one pet peeves is if people like sneeze behind me or cough behind me and they don't they don't cover their mouth or anything. That has always been something that really gets to me, uh, especially in a movie theatre. Even thinking about it, it's like having a it's like when Ace Ventura gets get, has to rescue the bat and he doesn't like bats. Yeah, I feel just like that. Moving on. Anyway, if you have any personal stories or anything that really relates to a, it could be worse or a survival or something that's quite funny, give me a shout. If you want to be on the show, give me a shout. I'm more than happy to read out or interview. I don't mind. If you know of any stories that have always piqued your interest, if you love a good survival story, let me know. I'll research it. I'll look into it. You can contact me on stringtoucansander at gmail.com. That is also stringtoucansander for Twitter, for Facebook, for Instagram and TikTok. So you know how to get a hold of me. And until next time, hope you have a wonderful day and toodaloo.